0: Hello and welcome to Heroes in Our Midst. I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Kupin. I am michelle sawatsky and i could not be more honored to host this podcast series, as I think the stories we are sharing are so important. They're real, they're honest, and they're told by people who have accomplished amazing things and yet have struggled and are okay with sharing that. In today's episode, we again go to the front lines. Gord McInnes has worked for the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service since 2006. He's also a senior firefighter with the Winnipeg Fire Department. He's been married to his wife, Nicole, for 13 years, and they have four children. Oh, and two rescued dogs. And if that wasn't enough, he's also a strength and conditioning coach on the side, as well as a rugby development officer with Rugby Manitoba. He played football at the University of Manitoba in the past and has also traveled the world playing rugby. So you could say Gord McGuinness has done a lot of stuff. You could also say the sports he played and the profession he chose are pretty challenging, often known as things only someone tough would take on. Gord has also suffered from PTSD, but he has battled back and is working again. Gord has shown that it can be done. But not without finding some tools to stay mentally well. Get ready to hear what it's really like to put yourself on the line every day for the well being and safety of others, and how, when it gets to be too much, there is a way to carry on and keep yourself well in the process. So let's get to this hero's story, but not before I asked him how he, as a firefighter, feels when we call him a hero.
1: I kind of laugh about it.
0: <laughs> I thought you might.
1: Yeah, we we don't really, I any guy that tries to take take himself seriously or, or a female firefighter that tries to take himself seriously, like they're a hero, we usually will start flagging them, you know? Like, you know, we'll just be like, keep watching uh, whatever, Ladder 19 or whatever, any of those firefighter shows where they're running through the yeah the smoke with their yeah. jacket wide open no mask on it's like yeah you'd be one of those persons. <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, well, you know, from the outside looking in, uh, we do certainly look up to you guys, though, because you do put your lives on the line for your communities and, and the people around you. And, we, and obviously, you're appreciated for that. And and I, I, I can imagine it comes with a life that um, you've seen things that a lot of people haven't seen. So as we uh, get to know you, Gord, today, and as we hear your story, uh, pretty excited about it. But uh, why don't you tell us, though, first um, about your life now, because I want people to know who you are now, like, I know you're married, but tell us about your family and your kids and what, what life's like for you now, and then we'll find our journey to get to this point.
1: Yeah, well, I joined the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service in 2006. Uh, at the time, I was cross-trained as a firefighter paramedic, and I was offered a position as a paramedic. Uh, I was able to cross over in a year and a half, and I've been with the fire on the fire department side since 2007. And um, been married for 13 years, and my wife and I we have four kids Griffin's 11, Lachlan's nine, Ivor's six, and Orla's four. And so it's a, it's a busy life, but I don't think I'd ha- want it any other way, even though there are days where you're kind of exhausted and, and I'm a bit cranky at times, according to my <laughs> wife, uh, working night shifts. So, uh, yeah, I like, I mean, I think shift work definitely has a uh, does take a toll on on your on your marriage and and on your family life like I mean my kids my boys especially well especially my oldest one Mm -hmm. can be a bit of a handful when I'm working nights.
0: Gord I I, we asked you we you know I think initially we sort of invited you to uh, be one of our guests as a firefighter but being a father of four kind of puts you in a hero category as well just so you know.
1: I think my wife's more the hero in that situation than than I am she does the majority of taking care of the kids and I yeah. he probably add me as a fifth kid sometimes <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah she's surely she's not shy to tell me when I'm acting like uh, I need to just go and have a nap.
0: So you're a family man and, you know, living life like a lot of us day to day and doing your best to be your best. And take us back to the beginning, though, how how you became firefighter, you know, this whole paramedic thing. And what I know about you is sports played a, a big part of your life and still does. Uh, maybe bring us back to the beginning. What were the sports you loved and did you have dreams? I mean, a lot of kids, if you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, one of the most common answers is I want to be a fireman, you know, yeah. is that, you? <laughs> well,
1: that wasn't, that wasn't me. I, <laughs> I never really was interested in, you know, you'd see a fire truck drive by. I wasn't like in awe. I was just never really thought about it. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, I grew up playing sports in high school. I I'd play football, high school football. Then I'd go right into high school hockey. And then I'd have like a month off and then I'd go right into high school rugby. <laughs> and then in the summertime I play rugby or, and yeah, I was, I was busy doing sports. And then when it came time to, when I graduated high school, I was kind of like, Hey, I want to continue playing sports. And so I continued playing football and and, and rugby and, um, was lucky enough to go to University of Manitoba mm-hmm. and played football there from '96 to '99, or sorry, '96 to '98. And then I took like a couple of years off of rugby. And then one year I just decided I was just, just bored and said, okay, I want to go back and play club rugby uh, for the club that I've been playing with in the past. And that year, just by chance, there was two guys from Ireland that came over and played for our club. And by the end of the summer, they were asking myself and another guy, if we wanted to go over to Ireland and play for their club. And I'm like, yeah, sure. (laughs) And so we, yeah. And so then, as I said, I I ended up staying there for five years, uh, five winters because they play, they play from September to May. Okay. And we're here, we play in the summertime for obvious reasons. So I would go in September, play the season there, and then I'd come home and play rugby here. So I, Played for the Manitoba Buffalo for a few years, which was uh, like a senior men's league across Canada, and yet the league folded in like 2005 or something like that. But I played three years there, and that was fantastic. You're playing, you know, you're going out, flying out to Vancouver, and playing against guys that were on the national team. So you're you're is the best competition you could find in Canada, and it was it was great. And uh, then I'd go back to Ireland and went. I was living with a couple of Kiwis uh, and they said, Hey, anytime you want to come down to New Zealand, you got a place to stay. And I was like, well, I'll take you up on that offer. So I did. And uh went down there in 2000, played a season down there with a club team. And that was fantastic. I like, I love New Zealand. I, if it wasn't so far away, I'd be living there right now. And um, yeah, so through my twenties, I, I was living in Ireland and traveled a bit, uh, obviously in New Zealand and, you know, did some backpacking and all that stuff. And then finally, I guess around 28, I said, okay, I got to get my life in order. Like, I mean, this is, I was making a bit of money doing it, like not a lot. Like you'd get, you know, at the end of the game, they'd give you an envelope full of cash or envelope of cash and stuff like that. And they'd give you a car and a house and all that stuff and pay for your flights. But it wasn't, it wasn't a very honest living. So I went back home and or came back here to Winnipeg and at the time I was looking at trying to get into education at, e, at University of Manitoba and didn't. And then my dad and my mom were like, why don't you think about firefighting? And then a good friend of theirs, um, Bob Smullen, who I've known all my life, he was a firefighter and uh, he had, he had re- just retired uh, when I came back and talked to him about it and then I kind of you know he took me to a couple of the fire halls and I was like okay hey, this is neat and and so then I got I went to uh, Vermilion Alberta okay. and they had a fire college there To get into the one in Brandon which is the one usually most Manitobans go to there was a waiting list whereas in Vermilion it was like we can get you in in three months so I was like okay nice. hey, I'm going out to Alberta so when did that? And yeah, it was, it was great. I guess the one regret I have is that it took me so long to figure it out. But at the same time, I wouldn't regret, I don't regret what I did, like going over to Europe and, and traveling and all that stuff. But at the same time, I'm like, I was one of the oldest guys in my class. So, I'm like, yeah, it took me this long to. Uh, kind of get my act together but so yeah and then it took me a year and a bit to finally get hired by Winnipeg so
0: when people are hearing like oh yeah I played in Ireland I went to New Zealand like it sounds like a pretty charmed life but you picked some pretty tough sports to play <laughs> like how is your body like are you doing okay you played quite a long time at a, quite well, a high level
1: broke my nose a couple times yeah. yeah like I mean I've touched wood I've I I was really kind of blessed with not having any major injuries like my shoulders aren't the best but yeah like I mean I'm 45 and we have a two-story house and I'm like maybe you should move to a bungalow like, <laughs> like the knees are starting to really grind as you go up and downstairs. so but um yeah as I said I didn't have any major injuries my brother I have an older brother and him and I we used to wrestle all the time and I had buddies that I grew up with and we used to play tackle snow football on a Saturday, a friend of mine, he had like three older brothers. And so we'd be playing tackle football with these older guys, like full on hits, no equipment, no helmet, nothing. And we used to do this every Sunday. So I kind of grew up around these aggressive (laughs) sports. So yeah. So like, I mean, so playing football and then like, I mean, I, my first rugby game I ever played in, these older guys, like I was friends with the, this friend of mine, him and his older brothers, they were going to go play in this snow rugby tournament, at the mm-hmm. Festival de Rocher. Okay. And they're like, do you want to come along? I'm like, sure. <laughs> like we're playing against grown men here, like in this tournament. Like, I mean, this is back in 1991, right? Oh boy. So there was no, yeah, there was no like guidelines. Like you can't be, you have to be under eight You can't play if you're underage. And So I've been around that kind of, those aggressive sports, yeah. as I said, Touchwood. I haven't had any major injuries, had a couple of concussions and a couple of broken noses, but other than that, you fared pretty well. Yeah.
0: How long were you at U of M playing football?
1: Well, I played three seasons there. Nice. So there, yeah. was, there were some dark years. Well, we, my first year we went three and five and then, uh, and then I took a year off and then the next, and then when I was 97, Brian Dobie got hired. And that was his first year. And it wasn't very fair for Brian because he got hired in June. So our camp started in August. He didn't have any say in the kids that he, the guys that he recruited. And it was, it was a rough season. We ended up going 0-8. That was the long season. And then the the year after we went three and five was a bit better. And then the opportunity to go to Ireland came across and I just, Said, okay, I'm done, finished up my degree uh the following summer. That was part of the deal <laughs> with my parents. I had to finish okay. my degree. You can go to Ireland for a year, but you have to finish your degree when you come back. And I was like, okay.
0: But obviously, a strong athletic guy to be able to play these kind of sports. Did that did that help you uh totally land a job as a firefighter?
1: Yeah, like it definitely helps for sure. You need to have some the strength and, and uh, mobility to do the the job. And like, I mean, working, you're working in a team, you know, you're, you're with your crew. So yeah, it's, it's very like team oriented. And as I said to you, when I, when I was in fire college and figuring, you know, doing all this stuff, I was just like, man, I should have done this a long time ago. Like, I mean, this is so relatable to what I've been doing. It's a great job and, and it's great to wake up in the morning and, and be excited to go to work and see the guys that you've been working, you know, the guys that you work with and, and, and girls that you work with. Like I, right now I have a great crew of people that I work with, a couple of guys and a female firefighter, and we all get along. We all like to work out and we all like to eat. Yeah. And it's, as I said, it's, it's like, you're not really, at, at, it feels like it. sometimes it feels like you're not at work. You're like, you're just having fun hanging out. So it's, yeah. it's great.
0: Seems to me, there are some things in life where, you know, when, when you say, okay, I've got your back. And yeah. it seems to me that, you know, when you, when you go to a fire or you go to, to do what you guys do, I mean, the potential is there to literally be there for your teammate in terms of your fellow firefighter, in terms of safety and, and even, you know, sort of saving lives.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. It's like I mean, and like I mean not only on, on, at fires but uh, on medical calls. Like I mean, you know, you're, yeah. you know, if we're helping, you know, somebody's whatever trapped in their basement and we're how, ha- you know, we're helping each other like you might have two or three people carrying somebody out of a out of a basement or whatever. Right. Well, you have somebody else that's kind of spotting you, watching you as you, you know, because nobody wants to see anybody get injured, right? Like as right. I said you're, you yeah and then obviously when you go into uh like a burning house or you know you're yeah you're definitely relying on your 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 team to to make sure that everybody gets out safe and gets yeah. to go home
0: you're also a strength and conditioning coach and you said too that a lot of firefighters don't just firefight no
1: well not all not everybody but uh, there's a lot of guys that, that do stuff on the side like i mean a lot of trades so you need uh, people to do concrete for you or you need people to build a fence for you. A lot of firefighters do that, wash windows, what have you. Yeah. And then like, I mean, I do strength and conditioning. I've done it since well, started in early two thousands. And yeah, like, I mean, I've had a lot of great experiences working with a lot of great athletes. I started at St. Paul's high school. Like I had a connection there. Obviously I graduated from there and Mike Watson, who was the uh, director of athletics at the time, approached me, hey, would you be interested in training some of these football kids? Because at the time they didn't have anybody that was really doing that. So I was like, sure. So so yeah, I was, I was doing that. And then I ended up, um, my wife was working at the time, she's working at Sport Manitoba doing Olympic or weightlifting and fencing. And uh, she said, this, this woman is dropping off her business card everywhere. Her name's is Kari Schneider. And uh, she's opening up this gym called Empower Fitness and Conditioning. And I said, oh, okay. So looked her, you know, looked at her resume and I was like, wow, this is pretty impressive. And so I kind of handed in my resume thinking like, like I, I didn't really, I didn't have a degree in kinesiology. Like I had my CSCS and that was it. But then that was, that was a pretty well-respected certification to have at the right. time because kinesiology was just starting to get before it was like you had a bachelor of phys ed, right? Mm-hmm. And now then kinesiology started up, but uh, or bachelor of kinesiology. But anyways, I went going meet her and she, I guess, had, I grabbed a couple of certifications in Europe at the time. And so she was kind of interested in that, in speed and agility and quickness working with athletes. So yeah, so anyway, she hired me, as I said, it was kind of like a part-time thing. But yeah, and then she's like, I got to work with the uh, national men's and women's volleyball teams because that's that was her job. And uh, she'd always need assistance. And then yeah and so then i got to train with those like train those guys and that was and the women and that was uh, awesome and yeah so i've i've dealt with i've worked with volleyball players and football guys and like a couple of university football players and some ncaa hockey players it's been great it's and i continue to do it like i mean i i enjoy doing it and uh You know, like, I mean, I'd rather do that than some type of labor job on the side.
0: Everything that you've done, I have to say, Gord, if we talk rugby, we talk football, we talk firefighting, we talk paramedic, uh, everything about you sort of screams strength. What we're doing here at Heroes in our midst in this second season of ours, we've put a a blanket around it calling Unapologetically Human. And and so some might wonder, well, where's the humanness in, in Gord McInnes? He's done all this big guy stuff my question for you is where is your humanness and and how does it even have a place in your every day when you have to go to a job that requires such strength
1: well like I mean there's definitely you know when you have you know we go on calls some of them aren't the best some of them and and there's you know there's obviously a, a side of empathy uh that you have when you are going to certain on certain calls as a firefighter you know and and the most part every you know i don't know i think there's probably about a 1, thousand twelve hundred firefighters right and the solid majority of of firefighters are decent human beings right and we all basically we're here to serve right so i say in terms of our humanness that's probably the best we can the best I can offer is, is that we're here to serve our pu- the public, and we're always here to help. You know, we'll have a call, and somebody'll be like, "You know, we're so happy you came," and, and you're like, "Well, we're we're here to help you." Like that's yeah. that's why you call nine one one, right? So, <laughs> um, and that and that gives you a, a sense of satisfaction when you when you are at a call, and you know, and somebody calls, and they're obviously having obviously not having a very good day and uh, you're there to help and you can, in some way or form, help them uh, make it better. In terms of being human, like, I mean, in terms of being unapologetically human, I'd say that's probably our best way of dealing with the situations that we that are in front of us.
0: Every time you see an accident scene, the firefighters are, are called and you see the fire trucks going out and never a hesitation. Obviously it's your job, I get that. But there has to be times where Every time you're called out, it's, it's you are, you're expecting and you're trained to deal with emergencies and situations where people could be in real peril and, and trouble. How do you build your resilience? Or, or is it just something that's part of the job that at some point you're going to hit a point where you're like, whew, now I've seen this many things. Uh, how do you deal with that?
1: Well, like, I mean, I've, I've had my issues dealing with this. I've asked for medical accommodation from uh, our city. To go into a different line, or basically a different line of work with the fire department, so I had to get medical accommodation to get into that department. So I met Dr. Tugood that way. And um, after meeting with her, she diagnosed me with uh, delayed onset PTSD. And I was like, finally, somebody has uh, <laughs> somebody's diagnosed me because I, previous to that, I had been I had been using our services that they winnipeg fire department offers us mm-hmm. through eap or employment assistance program through blue cross um, i'd see a counselor on numerous numerous times different periods like i'd see them for a couple times be good feel thought i felt good and then i'd go back and then i'd like okay i had a couple bad calls then i go back again and it wasn't working like nothing was really working and then finally i said okay maybe i maybe i'll just go into a different uh, division of the fire departments and get get off the fire truck for a bit take a break so then when i got diagnosed with ptsd i was like wow okay this was i at first i denied it like i was just like yeah okay this is what's going on but now i'm in this different line of work so everything's good and after a few months like my, again my wife being well aware of of me she's like you're not you're not good like you need to go see somebody or talk to somebody so we started therapy not only talking about it but also doing uh biofeedback and neurofeedback and i tried emdr which are different types of therapy that you can do for ptsd and um and, yeah, and I found my way back to uh, fire operations, yeah, about a year ago. I think it's more and more guys and more, more and more men and female firefighters are are definitely, uh, I guess, coming out, saying that they have issues, that they have problems. And it's a good thing. Like, I mean, I, I when I first started this job, it was definitely not talked about. It was just kind of like, that was a bad call. Are you okay? Kind of thing. Like, yeah. not really like, hey, man, like, we need to talk about this. Like, it was just like, are you okay? Like, <laughs> sarcastically saying, like that was pretty, that was pretty screwed up call. (laughs) And it's like, you know, it's the the group mentality of like, you know, you'd have one of the officers say, is everybody okay? Well, like, are you going to put up your hand and go, yeah, I'm I'm not doing good or whatever. So now, like, I mean, and and it was amazing when I did, like, I told some of the guys that uh, I worked with, they were 100 supportive. And it was, it was amazing to see guys on my shift that kind of, texted me or called me. And said, I, "I just heard about this and wow, like I mean, you know, you want to go have coffee, we can talk about it. I've gone through the same thing 3 years ago, stuff like that." And you're like, it was I was kind of blown away, like I mean, it was great." So, yeah, like we definitely deal with the stuff and and, you know, now we have the service where you call somebody and you talk to somebody you know, you're not actually having a face-to-face meeting with somebody. Like, as I said, for me, I walked around for a year and a half kind of denying what was going on with me. until finally I met a doctor that said, this is what's going on with you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Kate kind of gave you a springboard to maybe even start trying to become better and actually yeah. deal with it. Right. Um, it, it, I don't know if, if this is too personal, you don't have to go there, but maybe for someone listening. They're like, well, w- w- how do I know if I have PTSD?
1: Well, I guess like I had one call that was really bad in 2017. I usually kind of, as I said, I'm kind of a creature of habit as well. Um, when I'm coming off nights, I usually come home and I'll have a couple of cups of coffee, kind of push through to the afternoon and then have a nap and then go about my day. Well, that day I came home and I just went right to bed. My wife's like, okay, sure, whatever. And And then, yeah, and then I came, I realize like something's not right you know the wheels start to turn your head and you're starting to panic like okay like this is not normal like I just kind of felt numb to Mm -hmm. how I was feeling and and then uh, I woke up or well I was I I wasn't sleeping I was actually just lying there looking at the ceiling and I came down at lunchtime and the tv was on and my wife's like what's going on with you like this isn't normal like like you and the call that i had been on was on the news and i'm like i was at that call last night and she was like well okay and we have these um, peer support group uh people on our on our on every shift and after that call we were forced to do uh what we call them sisms critical incident stress management meetings and they basically go through what you might be feeling all this stuff and as i said most guys are just yeah 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 like let's just get through this meeting and away with it and so this this guy texted me like the next night and saying you know hey how are you doing just checking how you're doing and i said actually i'm not doing good i need to talk to somebody about this so we went the next night uh, met for a beer and talked about it and like as i said i was just like you know what's going on with me like this is not normal like so he's like well go to eap and talk to a counselor blue cross and and so i did that a couple times and i'm like okay i feel good and then as i said i about seven eight months later i went through another gamut of, of calls that as i said were typical calls that i'd been on before but just for some reason had an effect on me and and then I was back in therapy again, or back talking to a counselor again. But again, it's like when you talk to somebody about it, it, it's good to get it off your chest. It feels good, but it's like taking a bandaid, you know, put a bandaid on, take it off, expose the wound, put another bandaid on. Yeah. And
0: then,
1: you know, it's like, it's, it's going back and forth where it's like, you're not given any skills to deal with this stuff. So as, I went like progressed you know I became more isolated I, I wouldn't really hang out with my crew at the fire hall I'd go on the computer and just not really you know like when I started reading about signs of PTSD I was like okay that that was me there and that's me like you know like probably drinking too much alcohol uh having issues with my sleep being very irritable. I don't know if that has to do with the lack of sleep or, or just the fact that, uh, and then anxious, being anxious, the, the gong would go off. And I'd be like, kind of, I wouldn't be running to the computer, but I'd be like, here, what are we going to? Because the one call, I guess, that triggered it all was like a call that I didn't really know what was happening. It had been a stabbing at the University of Manitoba. And I'm like, who stabs anybody at the university of Manitoba? It's like, we're going there for kids that are passed out from beer bashes and stuff like that. And it was this bus driver that had been stabbed. So yeah, like, I mean, and, and so that kind of caught me off guard. So with the anxiety of everything after that was amplified because you're just like, Hey, I need to know everything. Where, what am I getting into? So I'm prepared, ready for it. So, so those were kind of signs of some of the signs and symptoms that I was feeling, before Dr. Tuget diagnosed me with PTSD.
0: Right. And even, you know, even that one example, and even what we can imagine the calls that you go on, uh, literally are things, life and death things that we never have to see. It's not part of our everyday. And to make it part of your everyday, boy, you need tools to to go to that next call. So since we have you and you have walked this path, um, what are some of the tools you've learned then to, you know, how do you approach maybe a call now? What's different? And maybe take us along that path and and how that started to change for you when you started chatting with Adrian, Dr. Too good and all that.
1: When I, she diagnosed me and then she said, uh, I want you to try EMDR and biofeedback and neuro, neurofeedback. I, I want you to try them both and see, I didn't know what the heck they were, what she was talking about. <laughs> so I went and tried both. Did EMDR a few times and it was, it was good. Like EMDR is very raw. Like, a, like the, the woman that I was working with, she basically like, take me to this call that you went to and I want you like, it was very like, we're going to rip this bandaid off type thing. Yeah. Whereas neurofeedback and biofeedback, it's more about you're working on your breathing, you know, you're focused on your, your, your breathing and the neurofeedback, it kind of measures your brain waves and tries to help you with your focus. And so I kind of liked the biofeedback and neurofeedback more. Uh, just my personal opinion, everybody has their own opinion on what works better. And the more I I talked to the people that were running the the, the biofeedback and neurofeedback, like, I mean, there's a lot of people that use this, like uh, the US military uses this, the Vancouver Canucks use this, uh, a lot of athletes use this, like golfers, tennis players, stuff like that, because, it helps you deal with, um, obviously, with stressful situations when you're in, you know, dealing with adversity, and so helping you focus on your breathing, it takes you into that parasympathetic zone where instead of fight or flight, you're just kind of relaxed. And then the neural feedback helps you refocus on what you're doing. So there might be a whole bunch of stuff going on around you. There might be yelling and screaming and God knows what. But you're focused on whatever it is, like whether it's a patient that you're in front of, and you're okay. Go back to your CPR ABCs. Like,
0: hey, yeah. okay, what do I
1: what am what am I doing here first? Okay, and and so it just kind of refocuses your 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 thoughts. And when I got back uh, on the fire truck, it was like, I yeah, like I mean, I still do. I still work on my breathing. Uh, obviously, when COVID hit, uh, I was like, okay, I can't go to do this the therapy so that's kind of what I was working on but about three or four weeks after I had a, a crappy call and uh, I texted Dr. Too Good right after and just she was just like write down what you're you know write down what you're feeling right now and, uh, at the time I was away like if we have uh, extra guys at our hall sometimes other halls might have less and so you'll get pulled to another hall so that week I was pulled to another hall where we had this bad call. So I was I was working with people that I knew, but it wasn't technically my, my crew. Right. And my captain, when I came back, he was fully aware of what I had been through and all this stuff. So he called me up uh, on our first day off because he had just called me the news. And he was just like, were you at that call in Charleswood? (laughs) I'm like, yep. And he goes, you okay and I'm like yeah yeah I'm good I'm good and he's like man you are a black cloud for getting bad calls (laughs) that's the firefighter humor like you you, you use the dark sense of humor to get us through some of this stuff but as I said you know we just laughed about it but as I said like I knew going to the call like okay this is not police are on scene shots have been fired I'm like Okay. And right away, I'm like working on my breathing as I'm going to this call, like in the back of the fire truck. So that's when I was like, these are tools that you can use. As I said, talking about it is important for mm-hmm. sure, but using those tools to kind of like, hey, focus on your breathing, focus on your breathing. And I was fine. Like, I mean, it was good, you know, and, and I think that's important that you have tools that you can fall back on instead of just saying, well, okay, I guess I'll be going to therapy again and talk to somebody about my
0: feelings. Yeah. Yeah. What's awesome is in being human and admitting that you're human, you have now gained a brand new strength, which I think people need to hear. Um, How has COVID changed what you do as a firefighter, Cord?
1: Uh, Well, we definitely use a lot more PPE. (laughs) We're wearing masks in the hall. We're wearing masks in the fire truck. And then we have uh, respirators we use on calls, medical calls. And if we have a positive COVID patient, we gown up. Uh, we're wearing eyewear now on every call and, and so that's been different
0: yeah I know I've had some conversations with friends like with COVID and all the physical distancing some of us were we were just saying so if you saw someone fall or get hurt would you just run over to them we're supposed to say stay six feet apart I'm guessing from a firefighter's point of view if if you need to go and grab someone and that means carrying them out You don't hesitate.
1: Like, I mean, you're standing there with your gear on and you have enough stuff to put on and worry about, like in terms, like if you're actually going to go into a house fire, we're conscious of it when, when we have to be, but you know, there's certain circumstances where you're like, okay, I'm not going to put this mask on right now because I'm, in this situation right
0: yeah yeah well you know what I mean the selflessness even of that um, and just going and doing what you need to do is part of why we call you guys heroes just saying Gord I'm so glad to hear that you carry on helping everyone around you because you've been able to find a way to do that and so anyway thanks I just say congrats on that because I think that's that's just huge
1: like as I said when I first told some guys that I worked with they shared their experiences with me and and I've you know, I've had guys after that that have, you know, done the same thing, called me or, or texted me and said, hey, I'm going through this. And you carry along and you, you pass along uh, what you went through and you kind of pass along what works best for you. And hopefully they get their you know help. And, and, and that's that's the biggest thing. I've always said, like, at times our department can sometimes be reactive instead of being proactive. And we had uh, two firefighters uh, die in a fire a number of years ago from flashover. And after that happened, all of a sudden we had a flashover container. And now all of a sudden we do all more training about reading smoke and, you know, what you're walking into, things like that. We're a lot more educated, a lot more trained, which is excellent. But right. the fact that we could have had all this training before that. Same thing goes with PTSD. I think like there's a lot of guys that are dealing with it that are quiet about it, don't want to deal with it. And they're using other things to get through it. There are guys that are like myself that are paying out of their pocket to get this therapy. You know, I signed on to this job. I didn't sign on to say, Oh yeah, I can't wait to get PTSD, you know, 14 right. years down the road. That's not how it should be.
0: I would agree. And, and the great thing we've learned today is there are ways that we can, we can move forward and, uh, and be strong. Hey, Gord, I have some rapid fire questions to ask you. Excellent. Uh, the first one is, what is your favorite sound?
1: Something that starts, like a a lawnmower, a snowblower, chainsaw. When it starts and it sounds great, you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> that, that nice sound of a motor's, you know, not like clunking out and you're like, oh, I gotta fix this. That's my favorite sound.
0: That's awesome. What does being unapologetically human mean to you and why is it important?
1: Being unapologetically human, like in this situation, the current situation that we're in, I think is just to be decent to each other. Um, like you're seeing, you know, on the news, you're seeing both sides of things. Like you're seeing the people that are fully involved in this, like, the, you know, you look at our healthcare system, nurses, doctors that are dealing with our pandemic every day. Uh, and then you have the other side of people that aren't wearing masks, refuse to wear masks, and you're just kind of head, scratch, head scratching. But at the end of the day, I think it's important that we all just kind of try to be kind to each other and and uh, and deal with the, the situation that we're in.
0: Okay, so on the other side of things, what is something funny that has happened to you? Do you have a favorite crazy story? You live, I mean, your job's pretty serious, but we know you firefighters, you have some fun. You guys are like family. Do you have a crazy story you can share, for, share with us? Well,
1: probably one of the, one of the funniest moments, I guess, was I've been on for a few years and actually one of the guys that I work with right now, him and I, we kind of started our careers together. We were junior guys at this hall and uh, we had a small fire um, at this business on Cordon. It was a clothing store. And uh, our Lieutenant at the time goes you two guys you're going in like and we're like oh awesome like we so we get our masks on and we're all ready to go and there's a charge line like full of water ready to go and these four guys come around this other crew comes around and uh, they were a lot more senior to us <laughs> and they're looking at us like you're not grabbing that hose and I'm, I went and grabbed it fast and then they're all like I guess we're all going in and so we all went in together and I start to do a search a right-hand search and I'm searching, I get tangled up in all these clothes and hangers and they're all like back up again. And so we back out of the, of the shop <laughs> and they grab the hose from me and they're like, let's go. <laughs> so I kind of ate some humble pie there. I was just like, it was kind of funny cause we're just like, we laugh about it now. Cause, uh, yeah, the guy that I, the, my, the guy that I was working with, uh, the lieutenant goes to him, goes, breach that door with your sledgehammer. And so he takes the sledgehammer and he basically went to hit the glass and lost the grip. And the sledgehammer like went flying into <laughs> flying into the, the shop. And I was like, Dave, you going to go get your sledgehammer now? <laughs> so, <laughs> so the two of us, we, we, as I said, you know, 14 years later, we still laugh about it. So, you know.
0: What does hope mean to you? How would you define hope?
1: Well, in this present moment, uh, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Like, I mean, we have a vaccine that's being distributed. Um, like I think that's kind of what everybody should be hoping for: is that we all get vaccinated, and this is a thing of the past. And, but I think, as at the same time, I think we, I think we're more hopeful because. I think we're going to be more prepared for future outbreaks.
0: What is your biggest takeaway from the uh, great pause, as we could call this?
1: When March, when everything just shut down, I think it kind of gave us pause to realize, especially for me, the, like how busy my life was do, working or running a gym and, and obviously doing firefighting and and my family and everything. It was kind of like, everything just shut down and stopped and it was like kind of like you got to breathe a bit um, but I, again i was just like seeing how everybody has dealt with the situation like everybody's got different situations in terms of their livelihood right like i i'm thankful for my job and i'm so happy that I, i'm able like nothing's happened to our family or my family but obviously there have been people out there that are that are suffering like that have lost their jobs or had to close down their businesses and so forth and so, you know, it's it's different how everybody how everybody's reacting and, and what their opinion is of the pandemic. And uh, it's good and bad. It's just kind of it's, it's interesting. I, I find it interesting how like, you know, how we are in Canada compared to the United States. And, and you know, I, I watch the news and you're just kind of scratching your head at yeah. how things are there. And it's been interesting to watch the different dynamics of people and, and, and their opinions on this situation that we're in.
0: Yeah. Reminds us how varied we are and uh, maybe it reminds us how we want to be for sure. Yeah. Who is the bravest leader, you know, and why is that and what elements of humanness did they display and allow others to display?
1: Well, I don't really know these people personally, but I'd say probably the bra- bravest people right now are, are uh, the nurses and doctors that are in the ICUs uh, of all these hospitals. Like, I mean, I, as I said, I watch the news and you're watching these nurses and doctors gown up for their, you know, their shift. And you're just like, wow, I don't know how they deal with this. Like it's extremely brave. And uh, because on top of that, you know, a lot of these nurses and doctors have lives and families as well. And some of them have like basically put themselves in isolation, haven't seen their families. And
0: it's, it's amazing what they've
1: done. You know, they've, like they're sacrificing themselves for uh for the greater good and so I'd say those people are definitely the bravest people I know
0: and that almost answers my next question an example of the best in humanity that you have seen during this time
1: yeah well it kind of carries into that,
0: that answer. Yeah.
1: like I mean as I said you you I know I know some people that have you know family members that are nurses and that you know work at a health science center and stuff like that that work in ICUs and um, you know, when you when you have people that kind of come to you and go all oh, this, this COVID thing, it's all, it's all a sham or the, the, the hospitals are empty. And I, you know, some guys are like, uh, actually, my daughter, she works in the ICU and she sees people dying every day. So explain that one to me. Dumbfounded and they're, they're not, you know, all of a sudden they just their opinion just shuts down. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing is real. And, uh, and those, those, those people, they're, they're sacrificing themselves and they're putting themselves on the line.
0: Hey, uh, who are two or three people who have influenced you and how did they impact your life?
1: Well, I'd have to say with regards to firefighting, uh, like I mentioned, Bob Smullen. He is a close friend of my, fam- of my parents, like him and his wife. He was a, he was a retired platoon chief. He kind of, I guess, spurred me into getting into firefighting. He helped me, him and uh, his wife, Connie, she passed away a few years ago, but both of them helped me kind of get ready for the the testing and the interviews and all that stuff. So they definitely had a huge influence on me getting into the fire departments. Um, and then uh, my first captain, uh, Walter Kloos, if you're looking in the encyclopedia for a picture of a firefighter, he's it. Like he's, he's this tall guy. He's retired now, but he's like 6'4", six, 6'5" uh he had this big thick mustache and uh you know he's super nice guy a gentleman and he also had expectations and so if you didn't meet those expectations he'd tell you Like it, he kind of almost was like a father figure and but he also had this great sense of humor and uh he was like one of those guys that you just i'll follow this guy in anywhere and um you know both those guys they had a uh, A calmness to them so like we had a few house fires with them and when things are going not so not that great you know you walk you roll up to a a house on fire they're very calm and that's 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 great leadership right there like I mean when you have somebody that you can rely on that's just very calm and when not everything is kind of going crazy uh so he as well had a huge influence on my my career um and then as well my parents because they were both kind of when I came back from overseas they were like maybe you should try this maybe you think you'd like it and I as I said I remember coming calling them when I had been in it for about six seven weeks and I was just like I love this and my only regret is I didn't start this earlier definitely I had an influence on that, career choice
0: yeah well Gord thank you for sharing your story I love how you Love what you do, even though you've had the challenges you've had. And that's, in the end, I think, what makes what's going to make us the strongest. It's our humanness and being unapologetic about it. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been great.
0: That's Gord McGinnis, a hero in our midst, not just for running into and out of burning buildings, but even more so for being so unapologetically human that he wanted to share his story with all of us and wants things to be better moving forward for everyone in every profession. So really, in doing this, Gord has once again done something for the well-being and safety of others before himself. Thank you, Gord, and to all who are just like you, working in our midst. We sure would love if you'd share this story with anyone who you think would like to listen to it. You can find so many more stories at heroesinourmidst.ca or... Anywhere, really, that you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to Heroes in Our Midst. Follow us, like us, tag us. But above even all of that, we hope you have been inspired and encouraged. And if that's all that comes out of this for you, to us, it'll be enough. Thanks for listening.